Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful, grant that in the same Spirit we may be made truly wise and never to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Peter. And it is my delight to welcome our speaker this evening. Our speaker this evening is the President of Catholic Answers. Mr. Christopher Check holds a degree in English literature from Rice University. He served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the United States Marine Corps before serving for 19 years as vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development and was named president in 2015. His writings have appeared in numerous Catholic and secular outlets, and he has addressed audience across the United States and in Europe. In their spare time, he and his family run a show kennel called Top Meadow Cavaliers, named for D.K. Chesterton's Beaconsfield Estate, where they show and breed Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, famed companions of the Stuart Kings. We are delighted to host him once again at the ICC this evening, so please join me in welcoming Christopher Check, and I will turn it over to you. Uh, I just want to underscore uh, Peter's recommendation of Romana Guardini. Frankly, everything he wrote was magnificent. Uh, but can I just take a minute and tell a story about the Lord? When I was very, very young, and I had just started working at the Rockford Institute, so this I'd just gotten out of the Marine Corps. Um, I don't even think I was 30. And um, I, I went into Chicago to interview Henry Regnery, who had started Regnery Press, you know, the, the first great post-war deliberately conservative uh, American presses. And, uh, and, and he was quite old by that time, and his wife Eleanor were quite old. And the uh, Regnery's were Quakers. Uh, and they, and I, I was actually going to talk to them about something they had done in, their, in their, the very early days of their marriage. They had been participants in a uh, national program called the Rural Resettlement Program, which was designed to take impoverished people out of inner cities and move them into the country. Um, you know, kind of along the lines of what uh, G.K. Chesterton and Vincent McNabb were promoting with uh, 
um, distributism in the uh, in in England uh, a generation or so before. Um, but in the course of the conversation, I asked him about his work with Regnery Press, and I said, "What's what is your favorite book of all the books that you publish?" And he said, "I would have to say it's Romano Guardini's The Lord." And this was very striking to me. Number one, because I'd heard of Guardini, I knew nothing of him. But two, a book written by uh, um, a Catholic Italian priest. And uh, this Quaker was saying, Romano Guardini's The Lord. I highly recommend this book to you. And if you're just going to just like grab it and just take a little snapshot, read the chapter on John the Baptist. I think it's, it, it's like chapter four or five or six. It's near the beginning. It will grab you. It's just stunning. And then, of course, you're going to want to read the rest of it. But all of his stuff is magnificent. His uh, letters from Lake Como, End of the Modern World. Uh, yeah, as, as Peter said, uh, among the most important theological minds of the, um, uh, of the first part of the 20th century. So uh, sorry if I cut into my time there, but uh, he's great. Uh, so I've stolen from people like I always do, uh, uh, but I have to give special mention to my friend, Father Hugh Barber, uh, from St. Michael's Abbey, just north of us up in Orange County, and uh, because I, I stole very heavily from him for the first part of this talk. So uh, first, a little reflection um, during which I want to try to answer a question, and I'll suggest what the question is. Uh, and then second half. Uh, and, and in the course of that, we'll talk about several modern saints. And by modern here, we're talking about medieval, you know, not the medieval period, but after the medieval period, although there's one medieval uh, saint in here. Um, and then uh, and then we'll spend a lot of time with uh, a really modern saint who's actually not yet a saint <laughs> formally. So a little reflection. Um Throughout Christian history, our Lord and his blessed mother, it seems clear to me, have favored women over men to receive some specific revelation or insight or instruction or interior consolation. If our Lord wants uh, an order of teachers or preachers or examples of how to live holy poverty or a prelature to show us how to uh, sanctify our daily lives, then, you know, a Benedict, an Ignatius, a Dominic, a Francis, a Jose Maria, a Scriva, he, he goes to a man for this. But when our Lord wants to engage trust as he reveals something, he seems almost always to find a woman. Now, I use reveal here in a broad sense. We all know Christian Revelation, capital C, capital R, was given entirely by our Lord to the apostles, but there have been abundant private revelations consistent with and also giving depth to Christian Revelation. And in time... Many of these are recognized by the supreme authority of the church. And often, 
This recognition, this approval comes after the critical and the skeptical and the recalcitrant and the just plain jealous have expressed their disapproval. And often this disapproval persists even after the church's disapproval. Now, there are not a lot of people who fit this description, and I'm a trad, so I feel like I can say this, but I, I think of some folks on like the very fringe of the trad community, the trad world, who object that the Sunday in the octave of Easter was named by Pope St. John Paul II, what? Divine Mercy Sunday, elevating to the universal calendar uh, a liturgical celebration of something that was revealed, you know, if I can use that word and not upset the dogmatic theologians, during a private revelation to a young, uneducated Polish nun, San Faustina. And you probably all know, this isn't the first time our Lord has done this, that has seen something that is the inner desire of his heart at last formally made manifest on the liturgical calendar or in some universal pious practice through a private revelation to a woman. So Feast of the Sacred Heart. Feast of the Sacred Heart came about through private revelation. For 18 months, beginning on the Feast of John the Apostle in 1673, so right after Christmas, Jesus Christ appeared to the 25-year-old French visitation nun, Margaret Mary Alacoque, to charge her with proclaiming to France and to the world the devotion to the Sacred Heart. And now we celebrate this feast on the Friday that follows the second Sunday after Pentecost, which is also, by the way, the Friday following what once upon a time we called, see, now my trad is coming out, once, a time, once upon a time we called the octave of Corpus Christi. In fact, the feast of Corpus Christi, and I bet fewer of you know this or knew this, the feast of Corpus Christi also finds its, re its origins in a private revelation in the 14th century, and also to a woman, Blessed Juliana Cornion. Now, don't take my word for it. Here is the great Alban Butler. The introduction of the Feast of Corpus Christi was primarily due to one woman whose mind first conceived it and whose efforts brought about its observance. So who is this Juliana Cornion? She was a Norbertine nun, some will say Augustinian, but that's also true because what the Norbertines follow the rule of St. Augustine from what we today call Belgium, born sometime at the end of the 12th century. In fact, in an audience from 2010, Pope Benedict considered her of such importance that he devoted a Wednesday audience to her. So Pope Benedict said, this morning, I would like to introduce a female figure to you. She is little known, but the church is deeply indebted to her. 
not only because of the holiness of her life, but also because with her great fervor, she contributed to the institution of one of the most important solemn liturgies of the year, Corpus Christi. I'm going to pause here because I realize I never, you all got it, I know, but I never really laid out my question. But so here, here's the question. So as Father Hezekiah likes to say, it ends with a question mark. Why is it that when our Lord and our Lady want to reveal the inner secrets of their heart, their inner desires, they, they, in the main, go and find, go and find a woman. So that's the question that we're going to try to consider here as we look through some of these examples. Okay, so back to Juliana Cornillon, uh, born near Liège. In uh, I'm sorry, French speakers. Uh, between 1191 and 1192. It's important to emphasize Liège is a, is, is a real place of, as, as, as Benedict says, a real Eucharistic upper room. Uh, there were groups of women in Liège at the time who were deeply devoted to the Blessed Sacrament, deeply devoted to Eucharistic adoration and fervent communion. They lived in community, uh, and they devoted themselves to prayer and works of charity. So, so the, all that is by way of saying the, the environment was already there. Juliana, at the age of five, uh, is orphaned, along with her sister Agnes, uh, her older sister. Um, and they are entrusted to the care of Augustinian nuns at the convent, Mont Cornillon, uh, where the nuns ran uh, a, a leprosarium. They, they cared for lepers. Though Juliana and her sisters were, were they, they actually did work on a farm that supported the, the convent. They were not themselves, deliberately not exposed to the, to the patients. Agnes died young, uh, and Juliana was formed by a sister whose name was Sapienza, so wisdom. And Sapienza was in charge of her spiritual uh, development. And Juliana took the habit, and she became so learned that uh, she could read the Church Fathers, she could read St. Augustine, she could read St. Bernard in Latin. She had a very keen intelligence, but she also had a deep um, how can, you, how can you say she was she was well disposed to the contemplative life? Pope Benedict says she had a profound sense of Christ's presence in which she which she experienced by living the sacrament of the Eucharist, especially intensely. And by pausing frequently to meditate on Jesus's words and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. This is the Eucharist. When Juliana was 16, she had a, her first vision, and then she received this vision subsequently during periods of Eucharistic adoration. And her vision is very strange. I don't mean it makes sense. Our Lord explains it to her. She has a vision of, of the full moon, in all its white brightness. And yet, the moon is surrounded in its circumference by a black band, by a black band. 
And she's, of course, puzzled by this. And in time, our Lord explains this to her. And he says that the moon represents the liturgical year of the church, but the black band represents the absence of a liturgical feast honoring the Eucharist. Our Lord expresses the desire of his heart to Juliana that she should plead with the church authorities to see that such a feast is established so as to increase the faith, to advance in the practice of virtues, and to make reparations for offenses against the Blessed Sacrament. 12th century, my friends, and think of how those have multiplied in our own age. For 20 years, 20 years, Juliana keeps this revelation to herself because she doesn't think anyone's going to listen to her. Kind of like Juan Diego, right? And he's sort of the exception to the rule. He says to Our Lady, I'm really not the guy to go see Bishop Zumaraga. But Our Lady says, well, you're the one I've chosen. So 20 years, Juliana keeps this secret to herself, but she eventually becomes prioress of the, uh, of the convent. And she figures, okay, well, now someone will listen to me. And the time has come to share this revelation that has filled her own heart with joy for two decades. She confides the vision to uh, other fervent adorers of the Eucharist, Blessed Eva, who lived as a hermit, and Isabella, who had joined her at the monastery of Mont Corneau. And these three women establish a, Pope Benedict uses the word spiritual alliance for the purpose of glorifying the Most Holy Sacrament. They approach a priest, his name is John of Lausanne. He's canon of the Church of St. Martin in Liege, and he goes to consult some theologians. Pope Benedict continues in his audience, what happens to Juliana of Corneon occurs frequently in lives of saints. To have confirmation that an inspiration comes from God is always necessary to be immersed in prayer and wait patiently to seek friendship and exchange with other good souls and to submit all things to the judgment of the pastors of the church. In time, a uh, bishop whose name is Robert Torote of Liege, and by the way, I think he's a saint or a blessed, uh, has some initial hesitation. He accepts the proposal of Juliana and he introduces locally the solemnity of Corpus Christi. And later, other bishops follow his example, and the feast spreads. Pope Benedict continues. However, to increase their faith, the Lord often asks saints to sustain trials. We're going to come back to this. Trials, suffering. This also happened to Juliana, who had to bear, as I started with, the harsh opposition of certain members of the clergy and even of the superior on whom her monastery depended. So we see this all the time, uh, kind of a jealousy or whatever it is. Someone's been given a special gift. Uh, among other things, Juliana was accused of um, misappropriating funds. So Juliana of her own free will says, fine, I will leave the convent of uh, Mont Corneon. 
and she leaves with several companions. And for 10 years, she's, um, you know, she has, she has like the son of man, no place to rest her head. She travels from one monastery to the next, living with one Cistercian after another. And yet she's completely humble throughout all of this. Uh, she never had any words to criticize or to reproach her adversaries, but she continued zealously to promote Eucharistic worship. She died in 1258. Uh, her cell uh, had the Blessed Sacrament exposed by one account. At, her, at, at the time of her death, she was unable to receive our Lord. She asked that it be placed on her chest, and our Lord allowed that she be, be able to receive him directly through her chest. Jacques Pantaleon of Troyes was won over to the good cause of Corpus Christi. Uh, he became Urban IV, Pope Urban IV, in 1264, and he instituted the Solemnity of Corpus Christi on the Thursday after Pentecost as a feast in the universal church, right? And in his bull establishing this feast, he refers to Juliana, corroborating their authenticity, Benedict says. He wrote, although the Eucharist is celebrated solemnly every day, we deem it fitting that at least once a year it be celebrated with great honor and solemn commemoration. Indeed, we grasp the other things we commemorate with our spirit and our mind, but this does not mean that we obtain their real presence. On the contrary, in the sacramental commemoration of Christ, even through a different form, Jesus Christ is present with us in his own substance. While he was able to ascend to heaven, he said, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And what does Urban IV do? He asks his friend and one of the great theologians of the time, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was living with the Pope in Orvieto, uh, hey, could you write some liturgical office for this great feast? And of course, St. Thomas, who's not just a great philosopher and theologian, but a great poet, writes these masterpieces that we hear still to this day on the feast of Corpus Christi. And as Pope Benedict says, these texts plucked at the heartstrings in an expression of praise and gratitude to the most holy sacrament, while the mind penetrating the mystery of wonder recognizes in the Eucharist the living and real presence of Jesus, of his sacrifice of love that reconciles us with the Father and gives us salvation. So there we have it through the agents, through the, as, as, through the con conduit of Juliana, we have this great feast. We should pray to St. Juliana right now in this time where the American bishops uh, so much are asking for uh, a renewed devotion to the Eucharist. And we know, by the way, there's a great need for this, of course, because, you know, and it always depends what the polls mean, but something like somewhere like 70 to 80 percent of baptized Catholic, baptized Catholics, not necessarily practicing, don't believe uh, in the true presence. But even among Sunday mass goers, it looks like the data says that uh, maybe only six out of 10 actually believe what they're receiving. And we know everybody goes up to communion, right? So we should invoke St. Juliana in this time where 
so many of us need, need to be brought back to uh, full belief, full faith in the Blessed Sacrament. All right, back to this question of why it is that our Lord and Our Lady go to women when they want to reveal the secrets of their heart. Our Lady follows the example of her divine son, and she also finds devout young women with whom to share the desires of her immaculate heart. Juan Diego, as I said, kind of stands out as the exception here. Um, but we all know Catherine Labouret, from whom we receive the miraculous medal. And by the way, I'm guessing all of you know, but maybe some of you don't, the only saint ever to physically touch the Blessed Virgin. Um, and then we also have Bernadette Subaru of Lourdes, uh, Sister Lucia of uh, Fatima, right? And on our own shores here, although her cause has not been opened, Adele Brise in Champion, Wisconsin, right? Recently declared by Bishop Ricken, the great Bishop Ricken, who's a wonderful man, uh, worthy of belief, right? Our Lady of Good Hope there in uh, outside of Green Bay. So it's worth reflection, like I say, let's think about this question. How these four women have brought clear definition to what the church has always understood about the Blessed Virgin. So we call the miraculous medal the miraculous medal. That expression miraculous medal, that started as a, as a nickname, if you will, for all of the miracles that attached to it, um, testified by the faithful who wore it. But the medal is notable for what? Giving us those words, O Mary conceived without sin, which the church had always held, but now stated very directly. And 24 years after Mary appears to Catherine Labouret, Pope Pius IX dogmatically defines the Immaculate Conception. And four years after that, 1858, Mary appears to Bernadette Subaru, and Bernadette says, who are you? And Our Lady says, I'm the Immaculate Conception. And Bernadette, an uneducated girl, didn't understand this, but Our Lady's words directly link the events of Lourdes with the events in Paris from a generation or more before with Catherine Labouret. By the way, anybody been to the Miraculous Metal Chapel on Rudebach? You must go if you ever go to Paris. You never see tourists there. It's always full of the devout. You, you absolutely must go. The heart of Vincent de Paul is there. You, you absolutely must go. Okay. So later, what would Bernadette say? The Lady of the Grotto appeared to me as displayed on the miraculous medal. Only five years later, after the apparitions at Lourdes, Our Lady would announce herself as Queen of Heaven. To whom? Another peasant girl, Adele Brise, on these shores, just a few miles from present-day Green Bay. Mary would set, call herself Queen of Heaven. 
Now, this had been a common title since the Regina Chaley hymn in the 12th century, but not formally defined in an encyclical until uh, just after the apparition in Wisconsin. Oh, excuse me. A century after the apparition in Wisconsin by Pius XI. And it would be Pius XI's successor, Pius XII, who would establish on the universal calendar the feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary using the very language of the, that the Blessed Mother gave to Sister Lucia in Fatima. So we see how all these are bound up. And all of this through devout, simple, deeply pious young women, all of whom suffered greatly, all of whom were doubted, even in some cases by those who were closest to them. What seems very clear is that, nonetheless, as I said at the very beginning, that is our Lord has favored and his, and his mother have favored women in preference to men with the intimate secrets and desires of their hearts. And yet, and you probably covered this in the series, it has been this way since the beginning of Christian revelation. Who's the person first in John's gospel to whom our Lord reveals that he is the Christ, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And in the Eastern church, as Father Hezekiah will tell you, she is revered as Saint Photina, meaning the enlightened one from the Greek word phos, meaning light. And her conversation, like those that our Lord has with other holy women throughout Christian history, is a completely private one. The only two people present for the conversation are Jesus and the woman at the well. And what does she do after the conversation? Just as these women, her successors in Christian history do, she goes and proclaims the message that he gave her, in this case, that he is the Christ. Tradition has it, by the way, that St. Fortina, her son becomes an officer in the Roman army. They go on to live in Carthage. Um, but because they're Christians, they're called to Rome to give an account for their Christianity under Emperor, Emperor Nero. And, and Fotina is martyred. How is she martyred? She is thrown down a well and left to die, giving glory to her divine Savior in this most fitting way. To whom does our Lord first reveal himself after the resurrection? Of course, before any of the apostles, before the Pope, Mary Magdalene. And of course, the first woman to whom he reveals himself into the heart, it's into the heart of Mary, his mother, that he pours the fullness of grace and understanding from the very first instant of her existence. Why? Why are women favored to hear first the divine secrets of our Lord's sacred heart, the divine secrets of our Lady's immaculate heart? So I, I, I think, and I think you will agree with me, but you can think of this on your own. I think it has to do with women's capacity to love. I think it has to do with women's capacity to love. And we all recall at the Last Supper in the Chenicle there, St. John reports what? Our Lord gives a new commandment. He says so. I am giving you a new commandment. And it is new. Love one another as I have loved you. And if you look, in fact, at the epistle reading 
for the Divine Mercy Sunday, St. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten by God. And everyone who loves the Father loves also the one begotten by him. In this way, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we keep his commandments. My friends, we don't need a doctorate next to Jesus. It's a good thing because I don't have one. To see that St. John is telling us that the depth of our penetration of the mysteries of faith depends on the degree and intensity of our love. St. John is telling us that the depth of our penetration of the mysteries of faith depends on the degree and intensity of our love. And of course, St. Paul tells us three things abide, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now, in his Summa, Thomas Aquinas is very clear with St. Paul's words that women cannot possess public magisterial authority in the church. But he goes on, as my father, as my friend Father Hugh Barber says, says something very striking. So far as the state of glory is concerned, the female sex shall, this is Thomas Aquinas, so far as the state of glory is concerned, the female sex shall suffer no hurt. But if women burn with greater charity, they shall also attain greater glory from the divine vision. If women burn with greater charity, they shall also attain greater glory from the divine vision. Because the women whose love for our Lord was more persistent, so much so that when even the disciples withdrew, all the men from the sepulcher, they... The women did not depart. And he's drawing here, St. Thomas is drawing here on a sermon from Gregory the Great. Thus, they were the first to see him rise in glory. Why? Because they loved. Because they loved more. In comparison to the state of glory, my friend Father Hugh says, everything else in human life is relative. The state of glory is the final word on our lives. And its intensity and depth depend on love. The truest hierarchy, the eternal one that lasts forever, has only one standard of of rank, the love of God. So my friends, this seems to me to be the reason why the Lord favors so many women with personal insight into his mysteries and into the details of his incarnate life. It's not merely, as we like to say, and as I like to say, that God likes to use the unlikely to confound the power for the world. And he's done this from Mary to Catherine of Siena to Joan of Arc, and the list goes on. But I think also he does this to show what abundant graces he showers on Those who love and those who love with such profound humility. Remember, there's one occasion where the gospel in the gospel where the Lord is specific about imitating. He says, Be likened to me, be likened to me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And it's those saints with a great humility who also love the most. And my friends, so much of the action of love 
takes place where? It's not in our doing. It's in our being. It's in the interior life. And I mentioned this before devoting a little bit of time to one saint that I want to say something about because she, she, she's a manifestation of everything I've been talking about. And then she sets up the saint that I want to end the evening with. And it's St. Rose of Lima. Rose of Lima is the first canonized saint of the Americas. She's the first native-born American uh, or Latin American or Peruvian to be canonized a saint. And this woman, this goes to this honor goes to a woman and a recluse. And I think that deserves a little bit of consideration. We tend to think of the conquest of the new world. And by the way, I'm completely confident or um, comfortable with that word conquest, because that's what it was, because this hemisphere was occupied by demon worshipers and they had to be conquered. Um, we tend to think of the conquest, the colonization, the evangelization of the Americas as very much a story of action, right? Columbus, Cortez, Bishop Zumarraga, the Franciscans in Mexico, the Jesuits with their Reduccionis in Paraguay, Francis Solanas, Peter Claver, Martin de Porres, Junipero Serra, our patron here in California and here at Catholic Answers, our Archbishop Lemmy in Santa Fe, um, Desmet in the Dakotas, the Jesuits in Canada, really all men of action. Men of deep interior life, too. But, I mean, there's a story of their actions. Uh, it, it, in fact, it's kind of an, an ecclesial parallel, if you will, of uh, the secular history of conquest, exploration, westward expansion, nation building. On the one hand, you've got Kit Carson. And on the other hand, you've got our, our Archbishop uh, Lemmy, right? Both in the high southwest. And by the way, both friends. If you've read Willa Cather's novelization of Lamy in that book, Death Comes the Archbishop. He's called Latour. But you know that Kit Carson and uh, Lamy were friends. But really, amidst all this, all these adventure stories, the first saint in the Americas is a young girl who lives the adventure of salvation almost entirely in the interior life. You all know about Rose of Lima. Um, comes from a middle-class family. Her mother wants her to marry. She does not. She wants to devote her life entirely to, to our Lord. She she models herself on Catherine of Siena. Uh, she disfigures her face with hot peppers to cause uh, blisters or blotches on her face. She's quite, quite beautiful. Um, she uh, imposes ever more and more severe privation or uh, penances on herself, uh, wearing a, 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 a silver, effectively crown of thorns that uh, poke or really jam in, in, into her head, so much so that when they finally tried to get it off, they had, they had great difficulty. Um, and it, it increasingly, in, increasingly severe uh, privations. And it's, the, and, it, and it's these privations that I want to just think about for a moment in the context of our theme. In fact, I think that's the only way to think about them, our theme of love. When we read about privations like this, the self-imposed penances, severe self-imposed penances, especially in our age where this is not the practice at all, we, 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 we sometimes get something like this from the hagiographers, from the modern hagiographers. 
the saints are people that we want that we admire and in some cases we imitate but not necessarily in all cases very well but uh this is as good as far as it goes but it's always kind of struck me and maybe you as just kind of a little glib you know i, I would think a better way might be to say that the saints give us an ideal to aim at, even if we know it, it, it's a it's 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 a long shot. But when it comes to suffering, especially, the question is: Can we embrace more suffering than our Lord? And here's the other way to ask that question: Because why why did our Lord suffer? He suffered out of love. So here's the other way to ask that question. In other words, can we love too much? Can you love too much? The saints who confront the question in their personal penances, well, they're the ones who take love on full bore. And Rose of Lima said, if we understood the value of suffering, we would seek it out and ardently. She did. And she prayed, Lord, increase my suffering and with them increase thy love in my heart. These these holy women had an extraordinary capacity for suffering. And by capacities for suffering, I mean two things. To suffer themselves for love of Jesus Christ. And because of this love, right, as St. John says in his epistle on the Divine Mercy Sunday, to feel empathy for the suffering. For what reason? For the same reason, love of Jesus Christ. And that brings me to this story with which we're going to wrap up tonight. So I want to finish up tonight with another Rose, another American Rose, whose cause is underway. It was opened by Cardinal Egan when he was Archbishop of New York. Her name is Rose Hawthorne. Some of you will know her father was the great American author, Nathaniel. In his final and favorite romance, The Marble Fawn, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrestled with the failure of Yankee Puritanism to confront sufficiently the problem of evil. And he allowed the possibility that better suited to answering evil are the rites, pieties, and sacraments of Catholicism, especially the sacrament of confession. Hawthorne's Yankee prejudices and his Puritan roots ran deep, however. His great-great-grandfather, John Hawthorne, was a Salem witch trial judge. And although have some suggested Nathaniel added the W to his name to distinguish himself from his ancestor, the great writer died not a Puritan and not a Catholic. And yet we might hope for Nathaniel's soul because he had a powerful intercessor. His last born, Rose, whom he called his autumnal flower and the comfort of my declining years, converted to Catholicism, took the veil, and founded a community of Dominican sisters who to this day care for destitute victims of incurable cancer. In 2003, Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, Mother Mary Alfonso, O.P., Dominicans, was declared servant of God by Cardinal Edward Egan of New York, opening her cause. Rose was born on May 20, 1851. 
When Rose was a young girl, the Hawthorne family spent several months in Rome following her father's term of service as President Franklin Pierce's consul in Liverpool. In the Eternal City, the Hawthorns felt the powerful tug of Christianity made incarnate by the beauty of Catholic painting, sculpture, architecture, music, and liturgy. Nathaniel remarked that it was a pity that Protestantism had so entirely laid aside the value of art in cultivating religious fervor. The family also warmed to the atmosphere of joyful celebrations that attended the liturgical calendar, an atmosphere starkly contrasted with the dourness on Sundays in Puritan New England during a family visit to the Vatican Gardens. Seven-year-old Rose was dashing from one flower to the next when she collided with an old man in white. Looking up, she beheld Pio Nono, Pius IX, who dismissed Mrs. Hawthorne's apology for her daughter with a broad smile and rested his hand on her red hair and gave her a blessing. Later, the Hawthorns would visit Florence and they visited the Basilica of Santa Maria Novella by the train station there. And Rose there was very taken with a statue of Rose of Lima. Rose lingered at length before the likeness of the Dominican saint, the first canonized saint of the Americas. Knowing as we do the end of the story, we cannot doubt that the event affectionately recorded by Nathaniel in his correspondence was anything less than Providence planting a seed in a soul cultivated by months and months and months of exposure to Italian Catholic beauty. The two roses who in the economy of salvation both brought glory to the Americas beheld the beauty of one another's souls. That seed would many years, would be many years in coming to fruition. Back in New England, Rose surrounded, lived surrounded by her father's friends, uh, the literary lights of the day, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Herman Melville, Louisa May Alcott, to whom the young Rose confided her desire to nurse wounded soldiers from the war between the states. Nathaniel Hawthorne died before the war. He did not support, by the way, ended one, and one day before Rose's 13th birthday. In time, Nathaniel's widow, Sophia, took Rose and her older brother and sister to Dresden, Germany, where Rose came of age and met George Parsons Lathrop, a literary figure in his own right who would go on to become the assistant editor at the Atlantic Monthly and editor of the Boston Courier and then the New York Star as well as the author of many novels. By the way, Lathrop was a central figure in securing, uh, we founded the American Copyright League, but also in securing international copyrights for American authors. The Lathrops were married in 1871 in an Anglican ceremony at St. Peter's in the Chelsea neighborhood of London, a church, the rectory of which sits on, lead, on land deeded as a gift from Clement Clark Moore, who wrote what? Visit from St. Nicholas, which has probably done more to influence 
American imaginations of Santa Claus than any other work. Returning to the United States, George pursued his literary career and Rose did also. They, she wrote for Harper's Ladies Home Journal and she published a collection of poems. They moved in the inner circle of the New York literati. They attended all the great parties hosted by George's mother at Washington Square. But the charm of New York literary life began to wear off for Rose. And it could not ease the sorrow of what eventually became a very difficult marriage. Uh, Nathaniel and Sophia had been famous for their mutual affection and devotion, um, but Rose and her husband were often at odds. And the marriage was strained by George's, well, what we would call alcoholism, uh, a temptation that he would fight to his grave. The bright light in their home was their only child, a boy whose name was Francis, who had his mother's blue-gray eyes and red hair, and who brought them greater joy than they might have guessed. And it came time to have Francis baptized. And Rose said to George, I want him baptized like in a church like those in Italy. I was so happy those years in Rome, George. And the Catholics do things up so nicely not cold and just dripping a little water, but they make a more supernatural thing out of it. Do something with the baby's soul more than the other churches do. The baptism of Francis inspired George to pen the following poem. Today I saw a little Carmite child where soft light rippled and the shadows tarried within a church's shelter arched and aisle, peacefully wandered to the altar carried. Wise is the ancient sacrament that blends the weakling cry of children in our churches with the strength of prayer, prayer or anthem that ascends to him who hearts of men and children searches. And this baptism sent the Lathrops on the road to Rome. Although when they finally came into the church in 1891, the little boy, Francis, had gone to his reward. He died at the age of scarlet fever at the age of five. So the Lathrops became Catholics, and with the zeal of converts, and you all know such people, many of you may, may well be, they found a Catholic summer school in New London, which is an adult education symposium, and George lectures there to Catholics and non-Catholics alike, so it had an apologetics quality to it. They worked together on a history of the visitation order in Georgetown, in Washington, uh, and during this time, Rose is exposed to the rhythms and the practices uh, and the community and the serenity of the consecrated life. The collaboration was a great success, but it did not keep the Lathrops together. And by the end of 1894, Rose separated from her husband who could not separate himself from drink. One might expect a woman who had struggled for more than two decades in a failed marriage to retreat into a life of self-indulgence. But Rose immersed herself in self-giving. And one day, she is looking for her seamstress, and she discovers that the woman had exhausted what little money she had treating her incurable cancer. 
and now penniless, the seamstress was forced to live her remaining days in the squalor of Blackwell's Island. Those of you from New York know that today that's called Roosevelt Island, and it was tenements at the time. When Rose went out to the island to find the woman, she learned that she had died and been buried in a pauper's grave. She's overcome with pity for the island's poor, and she decides at this moment to devote herself to easing the suffering of the dying, but not just the dying generally, the destitute victims of incurable cancer. Now, Rose had a friendship with Emma Lazarus. Emma, you know, who wrote the poem at the base of the statue, the Jewish poetess who wrote the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. And she had succumbed to cancer in her 40s, but not before she told Rose, you must suffer to care. So out of the mind of this unbeliever, right, this great Christian insight, you must suffer to care, I am afraid, until you suffer, you cannot quite understand. And Nathaniel himself had understood the sufferings of the poorest of the poor. He wrote in his story, The Miraculous Picture, human beings owe a debt of love to one another. This is right out of John's epistle. Human beings owe a debt of love to one another because there is no other method of paying the debt of love and care which all of us owe to providence. So there it is from Nathaniel Hawthorne, John's epistle. We love one another out of love of God. Rose enrolled in a three-month nursing course at the New York Cancer Hospital. The staff thought that she would run in terror on the first day of her training, but remember that episode in the life of Catherine of Siena where she drinks the filthy bathwater of the cancerous old Courtesan, Rose fights back her revulsion at the fetid wounds that she is learning to dress and begins to see the face of Christ in her patience. And when her training was complete, she rents rooms on the Lower East Side and she uh, paints them and cheerfully uh, refurnishes them. And living like the poor that she is serving begins to dress at no cost the wounds of the victims of incurable cancer. And she works from sunup until sundown. And at night, after sundown, she writes letters of appeal. She writes fundraising letters, sometimes till two or three in the morning. Now, the fact that Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter had become a Catholic caused quite a stir. The fact that she was basically living in poverty and dressing the wounds of the dying in the most, you know, the wretched, in the most wretched neighborhoods of New York catches the attention of the New York Times. The subsequent story, uh, the, the guy who goes to write it, think he's going to expose her as like, a, you know, some kind of a fraud, kind of like Malcolm Muggeridge, right? And um, uh, uh, Teresa of Calcutta, right? Uh, but the, seg the, 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 the subsequent story was dignified, and it proved to be a great blessing. For a steady stream of small checks and donations trickle in, keeping her operation going from one day to the next. Rose set up three terms of her operation. She said, the patients must have no money, and, her, and their relatives must have no money. So the 
truly must be destitute. The doctors must say that the cancer is incurable, right? And then the third thing that she requires as she attracts volunteers, she says, you may never express any disgust or revulsion at the sight or smell of cancer and never permit the patients to be used for any kind of research. And by the way, to this day, these rules inform the service of the Dominican Sisters of Hawthorne. Uh, in, in 1898, George Lathrop, her estranged husband, succumbs to cirrhosis of the liver. Rose sits at his bedside. Uh, he dies with the last rites of the church. And it's thereafter that she makes the acquaintance of a Dominican priest named Father Clement Fuente uh, from St. Vincent Ferrer, my favorite church in Manhattan, by the way. Absolutely beautiful. Under his guidance... She took the direction that led her at last to make the vows of a Dominican tertiary. Inspired by the life of Alphonsus of Liguri, uh, who left worldly society to give himself to God, she took the name Sister Mary Alphonsa. Her, sis, her principal assistant, Mary Huber, took the name Sister Mary Rose after Rose of Lima. In time, they form a community of Dominican tertiaries calling themselves the servants of relief of incurable cancer. It was a common belief at that time of cancer, of leprosy, that cancer was contagious. Uh, Sister Mary Alfonso knew from her own experience that it was not, but it made it difficult for the new community to rent rooms for their patients. So they make a novena to the Sacred Heart, and this brings a great gift, a visit from a French Dominican named Father Coutenay, whose community was selling their home in Sherman Park in Westchester County. They were eager to part with it cheaply if the servants of relief wanted it. And so they moved to their new home on Rosary Hill in 1901. Uh, the property has been expanded. The Dominican sisters continue to serve there. They're victims of incurable cancer. who have no means to pay for it. At Rosary Hill, they accept no government money, retiring in, entirely on the providence of God, as Rose did from the moment she first accepted her vocation. Rose, Sister Mary Alfonso, became Mother Mary Alfonso, and her community grew, supported by donations great and small. One of her big donors was a guy you all know. His name was Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Uh, she, he and uh, Mother not a believer, by the way, maybe not even a Christian, uh, Mother Mary Alfonso, and he had a correspondence, and he was a generous benefactor of hers, and by the way, a very enthusiastic promoter. Um, before she died in 1926, she saw the beginning of a new 100-bed facility at Rosary Hill. Her order operates five homes in the United States today and one in Kenya. I recommend to you the, the life of this extraordinary woman, uh, lovingly set down in a charming biography called Sorrow Built a Bridge by one of the great lady Catholic writers of the first half of the 20th century, uh, Catherine Burton. I love all her books. Um, her story offers us so much to consider, confidence in providence, finding Christ in the wretched, perseverance under the most trying circumstances, and that Interior, love 
interiorly starts out of love of God in the interior heart, and it is expressed, however, as an act of the will in our deeds. We should consider the way the outward manifestations of the beauty of the Catholic faith worked in the inward transformation of Rose's soul, her time in Italy. Indeed, good art is a kind of apologetics. Rose also offers an example of thoroughness of conversion. It cannot have been a simple matter for a girl who grew up with an excellent education and opportunity for world travel and who lived among the top American literary minds, to say nothing of lived in considerable security and material comfort, to leave all these things behind and dive headlong into the suffering of the most destitute of New York City. It's an unlikely story. But as I said, our Lord has made a practice from the first of selecting the unlikely. And not just because he wants to confound the mighty, right? Because it's these, the unlikely, who love. We need only say yes with the fervor and faith and zeal and love that Rose Hawthorne did to see these great works in our own lives. Dorothy Day did. She was reading Catherine Burton's biography of Rose Hawthorne when she decided to found the Catholic worker. The end. Thanks for your patience. Oh, I went over time. No worries, uh, Mr. Christopher Check. That was just incredible. What an amazing story. And new to me, certainly, probably new to many people here this evening, but what a saint for our day. Um, all right. Well, even though we ran late, I think that we'd still have time, at least on my end, for, for some Q&A. Does that still work for you? Absolutely. Sure. Madeline, if you want to go ahead and unmute yourself, we can start with your question. Thank you. Uh, and thank you so much for the lecture. That was lovely. I learned a lot. I did have a question. I was noticing a trend when you were talking about revelations that had been revealed to, to women specifically, you know, to Fatima, Lords, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was a pattern of both devout young women and professed religious. And I was wondering why not like other stages in life? Why not older women? Why not other vocations like married or single or widowed life? That just really stood out to me. I was curious for your perspective on that. Boy, so those kinds of questions, I'm always sort of um, nervous about answering. <laughs> Bring it. We trust you. <laughs> uh, well, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, the, the, the consecrated life involves a level of self-giving that I think is total, right? Would you agree? I mean, don't all vocations involve total giving? Well, um, like, so a lot. Uh, the, this isn't gotcha. I'm genuinely asking. No, I, mean, no, I get I get your question. Uh, so consecrated virginity is a is is a full bore uh, manifestation of, of self-giving because. Of course, the, in in the in the consecrated virginity, there is there is there is the sacrifice of uh, the mutual comfort of conjugal love, to be sure, but also of the um, of, of of the love of family life and the joys of bringing children into the world. 
And there are passages, right, in the epistles that describe how the, and, 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 and in fact, they're used frequently in the divine office in Lauds and Vespers for um, holy women and religious uh, about the consecrated virgin. And I can't quote you chapter and verse, but if I could take 10 minutes and flip through the Psalter, I would find them for you. So I'll, I'll bring them next week. But not having at all the concerns, the consecrated virgin not having at all the concerns of this world and being able to totally be given over to the things of our Lord. And so I would just speculate that there is a, uh, all women, I'm glad you asked this question because it gives me a chance to, to use a word that I did not have in my notes, um, but all women have a kind of receptivity in, in a way that men do not have. I think that's an important word, um, but I think it's especially, I think it's especially present, oddly enough, right? Uh, ironically, if you might even want to say, uh, in, in the consecrated virgin, uh, because that uh, joy is sacrificed for the greater joy of the receptivity to um, these divine secrets of our Lord. I think that that consecrated life disposes the soul. I, I feel quite confident in saying the consecrated life Consecrated virginity disposes the soul towards the dispose of that receptivity towards these whisperings of our Lord in a way that those other vocations do not. In terms of sheer number of hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament, that makes sense. No, for now sure. we just gotta get to yeah. what about the old ones though? Why are these I, young yeah. ladies? <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. I mean, uh, look, I, I'm uh, the, the, these these good people have the time for what they do. And I'm glad they're doing it because. Not only are they getting these uh, these 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 intimate messages from our Lord, but they're also holding back the gates of hell. They're they're doing the most important work. Amen. Yeah, I would love to. Um, if you find that that thing in this altar, I would be very curious. Will, Thank you. I will make a note. I appreciate that. it. Kelsey, remind me that passage appears. If you look in in Vespers, in the office of Vespers for uh, consecrated virgins. There's that passage, and I'm just not remembering where it's it's from. Uh, it's from one of the epistles, I think, or Hebrews, maybe. I'll find it. you got to get a scripture guy on this show. I'm sorry, somebody who's read the Bible. Yeah. No, that is, um, yeah, wonderful insights. Thank you so much for those. Certainly, I think it speaks to the, like, the supernatural vocation of consecrated life and the natural vocation of marriage. And, sure. Um, Which, of course, yeah. is consecrated to the supernatural by the sacrament. Mm -hmm. But we're also in the world. Right. Yes. Okay, this next question is coming in from Anna, and she writes, um, John Paul II, uh, St. John Paul II, wrote about the attributes of the feminine genius, including receptivity, as we just talked about, sensitivity, oh, okay. and generosity. Could you reflect on that in the light of these great women that you've discussed this evening? I, I agree with Pope St. John Paul II. So I mentioned the, I mentioned receptivity uh, and sensitivity and generosity. You know, we tend to think of generosity as a, um, 
when I hear of someone's generous, I almost, almost, almost always go to sort of material generosity. But I mean, there's a much more, and it's, it's really easy to write a check. Uh, but, but taking up a weekend or, you know, a, 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 a couple of weeks to go off on a mission trip or something like this, this really demands a level of self-giving that just writing a check does not, even if it's a, even if it's a big check. Um, so there's a deeper kind of generosity, which is a, a, a generosity of self-giving. And, 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 we, and, we, and we say of time, and we hear that frequently, you know, time, treasure, talent, whatever. Um, but it isn't, time sort of makes it, it doesn't sufficiently describe it. It's not, it's not, it's not your time. It's, it, it's, it, it's giving yourself fully over. Like Rose Hawthorne, gives herself fully over to, during the day, well, first renting rooms, decorating them. I think that's important, by the way. And this informed the work of Dorothy Day. And those of you, I mean, in parts of the world, and this maybe even goes to the sensitivity question, boy, I'm really rambling here. But um, in, in, in parts of the world, uh, the Catholic worker has totally gone off the rails. There's no question of it. And they've got involved with you know, Marxism and things like that. But there are some really very fine Catholic worker houses. One is in upstate New York, I think near Albany. Um, and I'll, I'll remember the name of it. And then um, in a second, maybe I will. And then the one down in Houston, Casa, Casa Juan Diego uh, also. Uh, but, but, but one of the things the one in Albany did, they would, they would, they would dress the table every night for... 10 or 12, something like that, with flowers and china and just set it beautifully and then feed, you know, 12 destitute. And but it, but it would be beautiful. It would be beautiful. And I mean, I think this speaks to the to the to the sensitivity question. Um, when we when we dispense the corporal works of mercy, um, doing it with a with a with a with a kind of beauty in mind is important being sensitive to that beauty uh, because the, that that sort of that that sort of beauty is something that the that the soul is is sensitive to. Um, the generosity is it's not just in the time it's in it's it's in the, it's in the full on self giving of the of the of the action of of the time. I'm not doing all of the other things that I that I could be doing either you know to entertain myself. Or frankly, even that are my obligations right now. I'm not paying my bills or waiting for the repairman or repairing the refrigerator or, or whatever it is. I'm, I'm setting those things aside, so it's, I'm, I'm, I'm fully giving myself over. And, and and I think we see that generosity displayed more as a matter of course in the natural behavior of women than in men. I mean, I, 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 I just think we do. Maybe there's somebody here who wants to disagree with me. I don't know. It's certainly been the experience in my own marriage uh, to Jacqueline and in the, um, I, and I kind of think of myself as a gender person, <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but she, she so much more so. I would add, by the way, to, um, and, 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 that, and I think that sensitivity informs the generosity because you are, as Emma Lazarus advised 
uh, Rose Hawthorne. Unless you've suffered yourself, you're not going to be able to care for the suffering. So you have a sensitivity to that suffering. And then that informs and inspires um, that generosity. Yeah, that was that was pretty incoherent. That's as close as I can come. Yeah, thank you. No, your comments, especially um, commenting on how Rose would, you know, take the time to paint the rooms and decorate them. Yeah. Reminds me, I spent um, a little bit of time with some Franciscan sisters just visiting. Um but during Holy Week and in setting the table for the dinners, even though it was just the sisters and those visiting, they were very intentional. And even the way they folded the napkins, they like folded them in the shape of a palm for Palm Sunday. And they had different ways of folding the napkins for each, each of the days of Holy Week. And um, yeah, that generosity of time and attention. One thing that women are especially sensitive to is the reality that we're not angels. So everything that we experience, we experience through our senses and, uh, and, and, you know, bringing delight to people. I mean, ho- hospitality is a charism. It's, I mean, there are, there are, I think of the Bridgetines, there are whole orders whose charism is hospitality. Uh, and I mean, men, you know, men can throw, I can throw a great party. I think I'm actually quite good at it, but uh, women just have a better sense of this than men do. They do. All right, let's turn to Annette. Um, you've had your hand raised for a bit. If you want to go ahead and unmute yourself. Yes, I was wondering, is there any particular book or collection of volumes that you would recommend to uh, portray a lot of the women, uh, their lives? Uh, the answer is I don't know of one. That's an excellent question. Um, I will tell you this, you can get from Christian classics, the um, four volume set, you can probably find a used copy of it, of Butler's Lives of Saints. And uh, this is the edition, I don't know, that was edited by uh, Father Herbert Thurston in first part of the 20th century. Um, so I, I have all four volumes of these. And they're pretty dog-eared, and I refer to them a great deal. And I frankly think every Catholic home ought to have this set. Um, Sometimes Butler, or Father Thurston, I should say, sort of bothers me a little bit because he always has to, you know, from time to time when something really fantastic is going on in the lives of saints, he'll always interject a little bit of, you know, it was a credulous age or something like that. And... I, I just think that's gratuitous. I'm a credulous person, so I believe all the stories. I mean, I just do. I just believe them all. I have no problem with it. Um, but I mean, I think everybody should have have a butler's. But as far as a collection of, you know, 30 great lady saints that you should know, I don't know it. I do recommend to you Catherine uh, Porter's work. Yeah, uh, the, the biography of... Um, and, and all of her stuff is quite good. Uh, Sorrow Built a Bridge, which was the one that she wrote about um, Rose Hawthorne. But all of her biographies are quite good. Uh, excuse me, Catherine Burton. And um, yeah, Catherine Amplord or somebody else. Uh, but Catherine Burton, all, all of her stuff is good. And I know there are other lady saints that she writes about. Um, one of my favorite, favorite Works of hagiography, in fact, favorite books 
is uh, Sigrid Unset's biography of Catherine of Siena. I think this is required reading. Uh, St. Catherine is quite close to me. And in fact, in fact, I just wanted to spend the whole time talking about her, but then I remembered, in fact, I think it's on the website. I have a whole lecture on St. Catherine already up for ICC, so I couldn't reuse that material. But I highly recommend uh, the, the hagiography of, uh, of, of, of Sigurd Unset. Um, but I'll do some digging between now and next week and see. Yeah, thank you. Um, yes, I think that you gave that talk on St. Catherine of Siena on her feast day, no less. Yeah, that is in our library, as well as a number of talks on um, like women saints from the early church. There's icons of conversion where you can find some on the, the saints of the early church. Um, but the ICC has a number of lectures. I also would be remiss not to mention St. Edith Stein, whose feast day is today, which I oh. think was actually just a coincidence of us planning the series to start this day. So Yeah, that's not a coincidence. That's called uh, liturgical astrology. Well, I think we will wrap it up there tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Christopher Check, for being with us this evening. We okay. really look forward to next week's lecture as well. So, Can I just say one thing? So if anybody caught any mistakes in my talk, uh, you know, bring those next week and, and, and point them out. I, I want to be corrected. Yeah. Mr. Christopher Check, would you lead us in a closing prayer this evening? To, to the humble woman who loved uh, that um, our Lord first revealed himself. Remember, O most holy Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided, inspired by this confidence we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother, to thee do we come before thee, we stand simple and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer us. Amen. Blessed Edith Stein. Pray for us. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.